Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey friends, welcome back to Engage 360 at Denver Seminary. I'm Don Payne, glad to be with you again. And this week we are very privileged to have a return guest on the podcast, uh, our friend Philip Yancey. Philip, welcome back to Engage 360. Thank you very much, Don. It's good to good to have a chance to interact with you again. Uh, Philip will need no introduction for most listeners, I imagine, because of the breadth of his influence through his uh, speaking and uh, probably mostly his writing over several decades now. And we've been we I'm going to speak for the the body of Christ broadly, if I can be so arrogant as to do so, and to say we've, we've, we've benefited immensely from your writing ministry over these decades, Philip, and want to thank you for, for that in so many deep ways. Well, it's, it's something I would do, want to do for myself regardless. My, it's my way of working on my faith and sifting through some of the mixed messages I got from the Church in childhood. Yeah, I've been doing that now for 40 years, and I've learned from it. If anybody else wants to follow along, that's great, too. <laughs> that's a great life. That's a great one. Um, well, we're uh, honored to have this conversation with you because you have pretty recently released, at least this year, I'm not sure when it hit the shelf, but uh, this year you released your memoir called Where, right. that was Where in the October. Light Fell. Right. Yeah, so. Yes, and that, uh, you know, that title, several people have asked me about it. It comes from a quote by St. Augustine, who said, I couldn't look at the light at the source directly, but I could look on where the light fell. Ah, uh, okay. Of the sun. And that's how I felt, Don. I, I, in some ways, got scorched by the sun growing up. I got, a, I got an overdose of fundamentalist religion. And it it kind of spoiled me, and then I started looking at where the light fell, and I define or describe those three places in in my experience growing up was um, nature and the beauties of nature, classical music, and romantic love, and they were the they were the the drippings of common grace, which is a phrase from C.S. Lewis that convinced me that I had been given a misrepresentation of God. God was not this scowling bully in the sky going around breaking people. God was a God of love and grace. And when I experienced that, like Augustine, I found some of those rays taking me back to the sun, to the source, and I wanted to know that source. Well, I love your imagery, and that that makes sense of the book's title, Where the Light Fell, for me. Um, and want to commend the book to all of our listeners. I'm eager to dive into more of your story with you and learn from that. I I suspect that lots of people will be able to relate to your story, even if they did not grow up in the specific type of environments you you grew up in, either regionally or uh, ecclesiologically. Um, There's something about your story that's going to connect with lots of people even in different, that, that's my suspicion. Um, if if true, why why do you think it might be? What helps this connect with people, even if they did not grow up like you did? Actually, my first impetus in writing this memoir was to capture the subculture. I had read some great books on growing up strict Catholic, like Angelus Ashes by Frank McCord, or fundamentalist Mormon, like uh, Educated by Tara Westover. Mm-hmm. 
And and here we had this very large chunk of people in the United States who grew up in an evangelical or fundamentalist subculture. We had a lot of things in common, you know, Billy Graham and summer camps and vacation Bible school and revivals and Young Life Clubs, Youth for Christ, uh, this whole infrastructure. But I hadn't found a book that really captured what that was like, especially growing up as a child in the midst of that environment. And I realized that, that my own story had more extremes than a lot of people's because it, it grew up in, I grew up in the South mm-hmm. before the, or during the Civil Rights Movement, and, it, and my churches were blatantly racist, just overtly so, and the restrictions we had on behavior, you know, no bowling might look like, uh, well, people might be drinking there in the bowling alley. Right, no right. Roller skating, it looks like they might be dancing, you know, some of these things. Yeah. No makeup, no uh, jewelry. Those were on the extreme edge. And then I, in addition to that, I had the family complications of uh, an unusual situation with a, with a mother widowed, really because of a theological error that people made. Mm-hmm. And her, her husband died, my father died. So I wanted to capture that, but you're absolutely right. I have found in memoirs, I've read a bunch of them now, that they, they work their magic by summoning up memories in the reader as much as things you learn about the writer. And every time I read a memoir, it would trigger a memory from my childhood that I I would not have been able to recollect apart from reading that memoir. Mm. And and I think memoirs give us permission. They just stimulate those. When I talk about learning to read or the first grade class or something, then the reader also is going back to his or her time learning to read or in a first grade class. And that's true of baptism or taking first communion or you know those rituals we go through as as uh, believers and and part of a religious subculture so when i hear from people nobody has exactly my my upbringing but they talk about their own they tend to tell their stories i've got i've gotten even in the last few months scores and scores of letters from people and they tell me their story and that's what I love about memoirs. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, occasionally you you find somebody really famous, like a politician or a sports figure. You want to know everything about their lives, but in in this case, I'm just describing something that we that many people have in common, but not quite the same. Okay. <laughs> and and yeah. I I hope it does trigger those memories. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm positive that it will. Now, some of the endorsers and and I have to mentioned to listeners as well that the the accolades for your memoir are are, are quite stunning um, quite impressive and in some of those endorsements people are referring to your memoir as a bit of a prequel to all of your other books um, and as as I was uh, working through it I got that same sense that this this makes sense of not that they didn't make sense but this makes a new level of sense of so many of your other books that I've read, you know, Disappointment with God and Where Was God When It Hurts and, you know, What's So Amazing About Grace and some of those works. How, how does that work in your mind? Is, is this, how does this relate to all of those other books you've written? Well, people ask me questions about why, why do so many of your books have titles, <laughs> like the ones you just mentioned, or prayer, or what difference does it make? Um, uh, why, why do they? Why do the titles have questions into the, in the titles? 
And why do you why do you take that kind of skeptical stance? You know, you eventually end up pretty close to orthodoxy or right in the middle of it, hopefully. <laughs> but uh, you, you you do it kind of suspiciously, and they're absolutely right. And the reason is that I was given that set of mixed messages. Um, as I mentioned, my churches were were overtly racist, and I, when I found out that's not biblical, in fact, that's that's sinful. That was a that started a crisis of faith for me because oh. I wondered, well, maybe they're wrong about the Bible, maybe they're wrong about a lot of things. I yeah, thought. where does it end? Right, and so um, my books are really my way of sifting through those mixed messages and finding out what is worth keeping and what should be discarded. And really, we all do that to some degree. Mm-hmm. When you when you grow up, you tend to just absorb what the adults around you say, especially your family. And then later, as you come of age, you realize, well, they didn't have everything right. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you kind of um, go through and decide what's keep, worth keeping and what should be discarded. And I get to do that in public. And uh, when I, I joke that if I don't know the answer to something, I write a book about it. <laughs> That's just a joke. It's actually true. Yeah. Because I, I am a journalist, so I can go to people and to sources that help me. And um, I position myself truly as just an ordinary pilgrim in the pew. I'm not a, an ordained minister. I'm not a professor. But I have a lot of time on my hands as a journalist, so I can spend as much time as I want going to the the true sources who can help me sort through those things from childhood. And and as I wrote this memoir, it seemed clear that no matter what I was writing about, I tended to focus on suffering, the problem of suffering, and grace. Suffering because I, I grew up with a lot of suffering, mm-hmm. and grace because I didn't grow up with a lot of grace, but that I did enter into it. And when you get that first gulp of grace, you realize, hmm, I've been missing something all my life. So I write about those things that uh, are explained by my story, not so much what I believe, but why I believe and why I kept pursuing these same threads. I think I think you mentioned grace in almost the very last sentence of the book. You, you really kind of draw it to a close with, with a comment about grace, and that, of course, is is one of those words, those Christian words um, that is thrown around so commonly that it becomes rather cavalier and glib. And it sounds like through your entire journey, you've had to relearn grace. Now, of course, you have one whole book about that, what's so amazing about grace. But it's curious to me that you you draw your memoir to a close with that comment. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'd, I'd love to hear more from you about how, how maybe you always knew the word grace, but what is it that has taught you, you know, about grace that you something about grace you never knew? Mm-hmm. I go back to a statement that uh, John made in describing Jesus. He said he came full of grace and truth, and the longer I've been around in the Christian subculture, I realize we've worked very hard on that truth angle. There are, last count I heard, about 45,000 different denominations in the world. And the reason there are 
there used to be only 44,999. <laughs> and then somebody had an idea. I've got more truth about this particular thing, the atonement or whatever, than anybody else. So I'm going to just start my own denomination. And, you know, truth is important. And from the very beginning, Paul is, is trying to correct people's misunderstandings. And a couple of centuries later, they've got uh, these church councils trying to agree on, on the Nicene Creed and, and various creeds of the church. So truth is important. That's true. But uh, I don't find that many churches ardently competing to be more grace-filled than other churches. And if you look at Jesus, he didn't go around spouting uh, systematic theology. He, he mostly told stories, and many of them, so many of them, are stories about grace. In fact, I, I would say his story, famous story of the prodigal son, is probably the best summary of the entire Bible that I know. It's, it's a depiction of God, not as a scowling bully of the sky that I grew up with, but mm-hmm. as a, a, a lonely father, heartsick father, whose children have run away, one, in one case, prodigal mm-hmm. son. And he stands on the edge of the, of the porch, pacing back and forth, scanning the horizon. Could this be the day that my son comes home? And, and that's a powerful picture and depiction of, of God. Uh, Jesus knew, of course, God the Father very well. And when he gave us a picture of what that was like, that's the picture that we can all relate to at some level. And most people I know who aren't Christians don't immediately think of an image like that when they think of the church. Yeah. They think of rule keepers, they think of people who could be judgmental, or people who are very strong on, on certain social issues, you know, all of the which are, are important, but the first thing that comes to mind is not that image of a God who loves them, who wants to enfold them in, in his arms. And um, I, I think we've, we've really not done a good job, especially in recent times, because as we all know, the whole country is more and more divided, and the church seems to have added to that division rather than tried to overcome it. Well, that's um, yeah, that, that's fascinating, and it's curious to me as well because grace has always been in the church's vocabulary, at least as, as far as I'm um, aware. But what mm-hmm. is what is it that we've even if even though grace has been in the church's vocabulary, I, and I would think a pretty prominent place in the vocabulary. How, what have we misunderstood about grace? Well, we have these corrections that come along. Of course, Martin Luther was one, and in his day, grace had been, you could almost say, monetized by the Church. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, kind of commodified in a way. <laughs> With the indulgences, uh, the Church is, is the one that controls grace and parcels it out. And then it's so different from the image that Jesus gave. Grace is, is from God. It's a gift from God. And God can do whatever he wants with his love. And there's that story he told of the laborers in the vineyard and the ones who came late in the day at 5 o'clock got the same pay as the ones who came and worked all day under the hot sun. You know, and that's not fair. And his answer was, you're right, it's not fair, but uh, God has the right to do whatever he wants with his lavish grace and forgiveness. Um, it's, it's, 
we live in a world that is, um, I, I call it ungrace, a world mm-hmm. of ungrace, where mm-hmm. we're always striving to prove who we are. We're striving to accumulate, whether it's degrees or prestige or positions or money or, or wealth or whatever. Um, we're in that ranking kind of society, so you know where you are in the pecking order, and you're always trying to climb, climb, climb. And grace goes against that. In fact, often it's the losers, the outcasts, who are most open to grace. Henry Nouwen used to say, grace is a free gift of God. There's nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. By definition, it's unmerited favor. But to receive a gift, you have to have your hands open. And often it's the religious types, the Pharisees in Jesus' day, who don't have their hands open. They have their hands closed tight in a fist, judging others. Look, I'm better than those guys. And it's the losers, it's the sinners, the tax collectors, the adulterers, the people with leprosy. They're the ones whose hands are open because they know they can't make it on their own. Mm. They know they need help. And, and in America, which is a very competitive society, that's a hard step just to say, I need help. I can't make it on my own, like the recovery movement has taught us. And and the church can is in danger, always in danger, has been throughout history, of becoming one more institution that, that can look down on other people. We've got something they don't have. That's what the Pharisees did. We keep all 613 laws. Those people don't. Yeah. So we're morally superior. And when you start thinking yourself as morally superior... You're not going around with open hands, giving God the credit. Yeah. I, I love that imagery of open hands, and that that points to, I suppose, the openness of heart, the openness of life in general that is requisite for for receiving and responding to grace. And you know, when if I can reverse that imagery, it, uh, or or at least maybe extend the imagery of the closed hands to you know squinted eyes and. Uh, glasses mm-hmm. down on the nose and uh, scrutinizing everything, counting everything, measuring everything. It's that um, that that posture of spirit that uh, tries to uh, account for and and thereby mm-hmm. validate everything by our, our ways yeah. of accounting for it. And that, something yeah. about that is you know just goes against that openness of life, openness of eyes, openness of hands. Right, right. To receive. Yeah, I tell the story of um, going to Los Angeles one time, and I got caught in traffic, and I was returning a rental car at Hertz at the airport, and and because I was caught in traffic, I was an hour late, and I thought, oh, brother, now they're going to charge me a whole extra day just because I was an hour late. Yeah. And so I was in a bad mood and kind of tossed the keys down on the counter, and the woman clicks her keyboard and she says, okay, you're, you're fine, Mr. Yancey. I said, well, would, that's all I owe? She said, yeah. I said, well, I, I was late. And she said, well, we have a, we have a one hour grace period. <laughs> and I said, I said, uh, what is that? What is grace? And she looked at me kind of confused. I, I'm not sure they cover that in the <laughs> Hertz training sessions, <laughs> yeah. you know? And then she said, well, I don't know. I guess it means even though you're supposed to pay, you don't have to, <laughs> which is a you good had, start. You had a, you budding, you had a budding theologian there, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, we really did. And uh, you're absolutely right. Here we are talking um, 
around the Christmas season. And so often even that becomes, um, shows how we, when we calculate a gift from this relative, well, we got to make sure we cover about the same amount of money <laughs> that they yeah. paid on yeah. their gift to me, you know, and it because what starts as grace becomes monetized again, becomes ungrace. Yeah. And it, it's just hard to have that openness through life, that acceptance. Every once in a while, you'll, you'll find a person who does, and they just stand out. And, of course, Jesus' stories just tell one aspect of that after another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that, uh, that anti-calculating spirit uh, that, is, that is so liberating. Uh, Philip, right. you, you, um, I think one, one thread line, one big uh, thread line throughout your memoir is this sense in which the Christian journey is um, often a, a journey of some turbulence uh, as it kind of winds through disillusionments, distortions, maybe sometimes abuse, questions, this arduous, sometimes torturous process of unlearning and relearning. Um, through through that process, as you've chronicled it in your journey, where where have you found the pylons? I'm, I'm um, probably going to mix some metaphors here, but um, wh- where have you found the pylons that actually will support the weight of your faith I- amidst all the things that have been distorted and you've had to discard and unlearn and relearn and yeah that's a good question i was i was very blessed early after um i graduated from a bible college i moved to wheaton illinois and, and went to the wheaton grad school and got a job right away it was, it's my first it's my only job i've ever had it was um working for campus life magazine christian magazine for young people and then I, I soon became editor and publisher. And I had some very wise people there who helped me on the path. And my first book was a book called Where Is God When It Hurts. I was only 26 or so when I wrote it. Had no business tackling the problem of pain, but uh, <laughs> there it was. It was, a, it was a barrier to my faith. And from the first book on, I, I, I decided I've got to take the things that I struggle with and maybe through writing find a way through them. While writing that book, I came I came across Dr. Paul Brand, who was a pain specialist, or actually a, a non-pain specialist, because he he dealt with leprosy patients who don't feel pain, mm-hmm. and he he saw pain as a gift, a great gift, and I'd never run into that perspective before. So I looked him up, I went flew down to New Orleans area and interviewed him. And then uh, we became fast friends and collaborators. So for the next 10 years, I did three books with him, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, In His Image and the Gift of Pain. And that was probably the biggest pylon because I was still in a very formative period. Um, could, have, could have gone a number of directions. Mm. Um, and, and yet God gave me this, very wise and saintly man who lived out his life. And actually, it only takes one person who truly does live in a Christ-like way to make you think there's something there that you can't get anywhere else. Oh. And I, I saw that up close as I, 
if you want to know what a doctor's like, what a surgeon's like, interview his operating room scrub nurses. They'll tell you what it's like, yeah. <laughs> or his former patients. And as I did that over over that ten year period, I saw that in, indeed he he embodied the abundant life that Jesus told us about. So that was probably the biggest pylon, as you know from reading the book. My father died when I was just thirteen months old. So I never have no memories of my fa- my uh-huh. biological father. And he, be- Dr. Brand, became a kind of late substitute father for me. Mm. And what a what a great father figure that was. So he died finally in 2003. When I spoke at his funeral, I said we had a strange exchange, Dr. Brand and I, because while writing about his life, I gave words to his faith, but in the process, he gave faith to my words. I wouldn't have been able to write the kinds of books that I write now about Jesus or grace or prayer back then because I didn't know what I thought about them. <laughs> but that 10-year period gave me kind of a cocoon period where I could write with great integrity about his beliefs and who he who he was and uh, eventually get to the place where I could write about my own. Sounds like he made the truth part of the grace and truth quotient far more personal and and relational, less abstract. And... He, he did, and also pointed me a lot of directions. And, of course, during that period, I was reading everything I could get by C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, Jürgen Moltmann, people like that. Uh-huh. So my own theology was forming in the background, and, and I had a wise guide who, who could point me to some of those people. Philip, another prominent thread line through your book is the power of the church and of leadership, um, the, the influential role of institutionalized faith. And I'd love to have you talk to us a little bit about uh, the, the role of that power in leaders, uh, the, the, the power that leaders hold, and um, how, how that how that can go in so many different directions for good for good and ill. You're right. Um, yeah, it's a good time to do that because we've seen so many leaders who have publicly fallen. I, I was on a Zoom call uh, just last week, and one of the people on the Zoom call was Francis Collins, who's the head of the National Institutes of Health, mm-hmm. just now retiring and founder of, a, of an organization called BioLogos, which mm-hmm. I've had some things to do with. And uh, on his desk, he's got this verse from First Timothy. It says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and sound mind. And I think that's a pretty good summary. One of the things that troubles me about the about the evangelical subculture is that through most of my life, there's always been an element of fear. When I was growing up, what if what if America elects a Catholic president? You know, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, the fear of Russia, and fear of communism, and fear of the Second Coming, and Armageddon, and fear of Y2K, and then fear of gays, and and now fear of vaccines and masks. You know, and um, Dr. Collins was saying the most, unfortunately polls show that the most susceptible people, group of people, to conspiracy theories, like with QAnon, happen to be evangelical Christians. Yeah, isn't it curious? Which is, which is very sad. So we started thinking about that 
that verse, God has not given us the spirit of fear, and then elsewhere the Bible tells us that uh, perfect love casts out fear. So if we're defined almost by fear, we're doing something wrong. We're missing that perfect love. And and what uh, what uh, the verse says is love, power, and sound mind. If you have only power, that's without love. That's dangerous. And I've been listening to the CT podcast you may have heard of called yeah. the Mar- called Mars Hill. Yes, and going through people, leaders in the church who have a lot of power but not tempered by love, and it becomes dangerous. They become little demagogues. And that's what concerns me about the fact that so many evangelicals these days are looking to politics as the answer. It's not the answer. <laughs> and when the church and state get in the same bed, it's, the church always loses. It loses its message. And so that concerns me. Okay, so power alone is not enough. Love alone, I mean, that's good, but if you have love and no power, you don't change much. You, you don't have the capability to do that. You, you just deal on a pretty small basis, one-on-one. So we do, we do need to understand power and, and realize how we can use it. And that sound mind, that's the most critical part that Francis Collins was saying, because he said... Uh, we're not always acting with a small, with a sound mind. I've talked to so many pastors, maybe you have too, Don, who, who say my church is about to split. I've got people who leave the church over wearing a mask, mm-hmm. and you know that's just who would have thought of that five years ago that something like that would happen. There, there are various reasons to leave a church, bad theology or things like that, but over wearing a mask to divide the body of Christ, you know, it just doesn't seem right. And the watching world looks at us, and we're not, we're not always demonstrating that sound mind. And if we could just get that balance together, love, power, and a sound mind, I think we'd, we would understand what leadership can, can be and should be. Yeah. yeah. Leadership, as far as I know, leadership is not a topic that you've written much about in a direct or explicit sense. But, but what you are saying and your story and your memoir has profound ripple effects, kind of cascading effects for leadership. And I wonder if you are able to visualize a uh, kind of a constructive, positive image of what that type of leadership would look like, you know, against the foil of all of the distortions and, and abuses that so many of us have seen. Yeah, you're right. I don't speak much about leadership uh, as a freelance writer. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of on my own here. I, I did uh, have have some um, some leadership in in early days at the magazine and then on at Christianity Today. But one of the key ingredients that I observed in effective leaders is the ingredient of humility. I, I mean, Jesus demonstrates that. You go back to Philippians 2, turning away the prerogatives of the Godhead and and going down, 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 first to become a human being, a man, and then to become not just a man but a servant, and then finally a servant who gave his life for others. That's, That's a pattern of humility. And I go back to the to the beautiful scene uh, portrayed in John 13 to 17, Jesus' last 
lengthy night with his disciples before his death. And this was his last shot. This was kind of a summation. One final time when he could get across what's most important. What does he do? He washes their feet. There's that servant aspect. He talks about the need for love. The mark of a Christian will be love. If you love one another, then people will come and say, oh, I, want, I want what they have. And then finally, unity. And you need that humility as a leader to create unity. If you're imposing yourself and your ideas from the top down, you won't have unity. I mean, maybe you can force it, but you don't have the real kind of soul unity that a teamwork needs. And you you need the you need the love and you need the humility and uh, those kind of qualities. Servant leadership. There was a great book years ago written by uh, a management consultant who looked at all the great companies and he was trying to find out what did they have in common in their leadership and to everyone's surprise he came up with an aspect of servant leadership and i think that it's it's true as it's true now as it was 50 years ago when that yeah. book came out i really that that is such a an inviting and compelling image philip thank you for that i'd, I'd love to kind of bring things around here to a comment you made when we got underway, what it was that brought you back to faith. And you mentioned art, music, and romantic love. Tell us more about that. Yes. I, um, as I mentioned, I had this image, this false image of God as this power, kind of like a cosmic policeman, (laughs) you know, just going around imposing his will on people right. and breaking them if they didn't uh, if they didn't toe the line. And then um, I did go through this period of questioning virtually everything the Church taught me. It started with the issue of racism, where I realized they were just flat out wrong. And then uh, I, I kind of put my faith in suspension. I ended up at a Bible college, and I, I was not your ideal Bible college student, quite the opposite. I was kind of a renegade who would read magazines in chapel and, <laughs> and enjoy sitting sitting in the patio reading a book like uh, Bertrand Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian, to the horror of other students. Yeah. You know, well, I, I, I would have been reading time. like the Wittenberg Door or you know, Mad Magazine, <laughs> Mad Magazine or something there, like well, that, but... You're at another well, level. <laughs> you wouldn't have been you wouldn't have been well respected there either. <laughs> But uh, I was I was kind of open, especially the more I got to know Jesus, because Jesus didn't seem like the the church that I grew up in. He was he was elusive. He was mysterious. He was uh, not an arm twister. He didn't try to force people to believe. He just said, "This is the truth, and it's up to you whether you take it or not." And I like that. And I was open, but. Um, at that time, I couldn't tell what was the difference between what's fake and what's real. Growing up in that subculture, I knew how to give testimonies, I knew how to pray, I knew how to do all that stuff, and had accepted Jesus into my heart maybe a dozen times at least. And, and so if I would pray the sinner's prayer, how would I know this one made any difference compared to all the others? Yeah, how do you know when it yeah. takes? <laughs> yeah, and when it takes. And I was blessed. Uh, in that period with a dramatic conversion experience. It was a, I guess I would call it a revelation that came from outside, not something that I manufactured and not something I even wanted. I wasn't looking for it. I'd given up at that time. 
and I, here I am, 72 years old, I'm just telling the details of the story in my book for the first time, I've hesitated because as soon as you tell a conversion story, other people think, well, mine wasn't like that. Yeah, and they're yeah. right. You know, God deals with all of us differently. Definitely. My wife didn't have an experience like this. But I think God, God knew what I needed, and I, I was softened by the things that you mentioned. And, and they, they brought me back to the source where the light fell. I followed the rays of the light back to the sun. And when I was uh, going through that period, I remember coming across a quote from G.K. Chesterton, who said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he feels a deep sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. <laughs> and that's, that's how I felt. I felt gratitude for the goodness of the world. I was experiencing common wow. grace without wow. knowing it. Yeah, the scandal of gratitude. And, wow. Yeah, but I had no one to thank, and I wanted to know, okay, who who is responsible for the monarch butterfly? Who is responsible for romantic love and and uh, our sensory experience, like listening to music or creating music? And, and those things eventually did bring me back to God, and then God graced me, literally, with uh, with a profound conversion experience that changed my life from that day on, mm. completely from that day on. Mm. That's rich. Philip, thanks um, Thanks for just opening so much of your journey to the rest of the world through this memoir. That's, uh, that's a great gift, and uh, of all the many gifts you have given your readers through these four decades in your many books, uh, this, this gift, I think, may, may put a bow. Hope it's not, hopefully it's not the last one, uh, but, <laughs> but it certainly put a bow of sorts on the on the package of the many gifts you've given us. And, and part of that gift, if I can speak for so many others, is just how, how you've led us into the, those intimate spaces of your journey. And as you said earlier, helped us see something of our own journeys mm, through that right. lens. That's, um, that's right. rich, and we're, we're in your debt for that. Um, mm. Thank you for that. And well, I appreciate that, Don. In, in, in 2007, I had to a life-threatening accident, and I lay there not sure whether I would survive another hour, whether a bone had pierced my carotid artery. Mm. And I thought through, what have I not done yet that I, I wish I had if I died? And the, two things came to mind. First, I was climbing the, the 14,000-foot mountains in Colorado. There are 54 of them, and I had three to go. I can't die yet. i got three mountains to climb. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second thing was, more seriously, it was... I, I really want to write my story. I want to write a memoir before I die. So it was kind of a summing up. It, I wanted to get this done no matter what happens. And I hope it is a hope-filled, hope-filled template for other people to put their own, to stimulate readers to go through their own journey and kind of graph it out and understand where it came from and what God's role is. Because what I found is that um, Paul was absolutely right. God can use anything for all things work together for those who love God. Not, they're not all good things. A lot of them are bad things. <laughs> but God can use anything in a redemptive way in our lives, and I feel that very deeply. Yeah, yeah, I can tell. Well, friends, the uh, title of the book, again, is Where the Light Fell. And uh, following Philip's words just now, I, I think you'll um, experience a lot of the source of that light when you read this book and see where it points to the falling of the light. 
uh, Philip Yancey. Thanks, uh, Philip, for spending some time with us again. You've been a you've been a great friend to us, and we always uh, benefit from your ministry as well as any time we get with you. So thank you for that. Well, I enjoyed I enjoyed the time as well. I yeah. appreciate your your careful work, Don. Yeah, friends. Um, this again is Engage Three Hundred and Sixty, and we hope you'll uh, tune in to us uh, on a regular basis. Give us any feedback you might have. You can reach us at podcast at denverseminary.edu. That's our email address. And check out our website as well. There are always a lot of good resources there for uh, for you to benefit from, whether you're in a degree program or not. But we hope that you'll uh, encourage those you know who may want to pick up some seminary studies to uh, check out the degree offerings we have and see if we can be of service to them and their calling to serve the Lord well. So we hope to see you, not well, we won't see you, but hope to be able to interact with you at least again uh, real soon. Philip, again, thanks so much. Lord bless. We'll talk to you all soon.